Please turn to Matthew chapter 1 if you haven't already. Today we'll be getting the big picture of the book of Matthew. So if you will, figuratively speaking, hop in the airplane with me. And we're going we're gonna to go up to several thousand feet and fly over this forest called Matthew. Get the bird's eye view, if you will. To start off with, though, I want you to look at this pie chart on the screen here. And in this pie chart, you'll notice uh, some interesting figures. You notice of all of the various religions of the world, you notice Christianity is the biggest. Uh, about two, over two, two billion, sorry, over two billion uh, claim to be Christian. I don't know exactly how accurate these figures are. I just found them on the internet. But uh, Islam, the, the Muslims claims to be about one and a half billion. And then the third group, the third biggest, is the, the secular, the non-religious or the agnostic atheist group. Now, those aren't all the same, but they've lumped all those in together, so just over a billion. Hinduism, approximately 900 million. The Chinese traditional religion is uh, around the 4 million mark. Buddhism, 376 million. Uh, the primal indigenous religions, uh, 300 million. African traditional diasporic, I'm not even sure what that one is, but uh, anyway, that's about 100 million. And then Judaism is about 14 million. So lots of, uh, and, and of course, then there's all kinds of sects and cults and things you could, and other so-called religions you could, you could lump in there as well. But of that, you know, again, notice the, the, the biggest, which of course includes, uh, the Catholics, the Protestants, Eastern Orthodox, the Pentecostals, and and uh, and in that pie chart there, they're even lumping in the, uh, the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, which, if they actually believe their theology, cannot be Christian. <laughs> but anyway, according to that pie chart, that's what they've done. So of that, you can see the biggest one is Christianity. So where did this largest of all the world religions actually come from? And how did it become the world's largest? Why is it the world's largest? Well, these are some important questions. And of course, you'll notice Christianity. In, in the word Christianity, you see the word Christ. So it comes from Christ, Jesus Christ. It comes from His life and His teaching, His, His death. But He didn't stay dead, did He? He victoriously arose from the grave and conquered death and Satan and, and sin. And it's His death and His, his victory over, over that death through His resurrection that are uh, th- those things together, the exploding nucleus, if you will, which propelled the, the, the faith of Christianity across the globe. It all began in Him about 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ is, of course, easily the most influential figure to have ever lived. By the way, if you ever debate that with somebody, which I've done that several times over the years, just ask them, what happened at year zero? Now, I don't think Christ actually was born on year zero, but that's beside the point. The The whole calendar revolves around Christ, doesn't it? you got B.C.A.D. Well, what's right in the middle of that? Christ. He is easily the most influential figure in all of human history, and he will be the subject for the the studies that we're going to look at these next few weeks as we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But today we'll just look at the Gospel according to Matthew. I don't want to assume you know everything about this, so bear with me here, but who, who wrote this book? Who did the Holy Spirit use to write this book? Well, of course... You'll see Matthew mentioned here. He's kind of in the background throughout the book, though. Uh, he's, he's a very humble man, apparently, because he doesn't really talk about himself much. And you, you might ask, well, uh, when did the Apostle Matthew write? Well, it was written seven years after Jesus went back to heaven. So Jesus was in his 30s, around the year 33, uh, approximately when he went back to heaven. And this was written somewhere... Some say as early as in the 50s, late as the 60s. Remember, Matthew's an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, spent uh, quite a bit of time with Jesus Christ. 
What did he write about? Well, Matthew provides a very vivid, clear picture of Jesus Christ. And what does this portrait portray? Well, you gotta ask the question. Well, some would say, was, was Jesus, was it something new or is this something that we've already heard about? Well, that is what the religious leaders at, at, at Jesus' time thought, that Jesus was all something new. So to answer the question really is, is Jesus something new? We gotta go back 2,000 years and we got, we need to really listen and look carefully at what the apostle Matthew tells us. What started the, this phenomenon that we call Christianity? Well, let's look at what this book has to say. What does the book of Matthew have to say? Well, let me just give you a qu- very quick bird's eye view of the book of Matthew. Uh, you can look on the screen here. You, I've given you the chapters to think about. But Matthew presents Jesus' ministry in seven different sections. In fact, uh, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, as we've been preaching through the book of Matthew, Matthew, what he does is he'll start with narrative, then he goes to preaching, that's chapters 5 through 7, and he goes back to narrative, more preaching, more narrative, more preaching. And, and it's this jumping back and forth from the narrative or the stories to preaching. One of the reasons I wanted to preach through Matthew is because it's, it's, it, it has Jesus' sermons, great Great sermons, the greatest preacher who ever lived, preaching the greatest sermons ever preached. But in those first four chapters, they really provide the introduction for us. They include things like genealogy, which Jews love genealogies. They care deeply about that stuff. It also gives us an account of Jesus' infancy. Uh, Some of the gospel accounts don't even talk about that. Uh, It gives us his baptism as well as his preparation for ministry. And then in chapters 5 through 9, we see Jesus' authority going out, finally. <laughs> He's not just a baby, but Jesus, the one uh, who, who is prophesied to come, is the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. And, and so we see that, that those chapters contain the Sermon on the Mount. It also has the accounts of Jesus' healings. And in this section, Matthew appears to be establishing Jesus' authority, right, right there from the, the, the very beginning. He is the great teacher. He is the great healer, all in one. And Jesus is someone we're supposed to hear, but not just hear. Jesus is the one whom we can trust. And then because we can hear him and trust him, he's the one who must be obeyed. We see that in those chapters. In chapters 10 through 12, as a result of the one who's claiming all authority in heaven and earth, he receives opposition. Those chapters show a rising opposition to Jesus' ministry. In chapter 10, Jesus prepares his disciples for this opposition. And, and this section is helpful, by the way, if you're a Christian. It's, it's helpful for you as you're also going to experience opposition as a result of your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, after all, said, in this world you will have tribulation. You're you're going to receive the same that the Master received. Now, you may not be crucified on a cross, but you're going to be crucified, at least figuratively speaking. So there's helpful things there for us. Then in chapters 13 through 16, division concerning Jesus occurs. The opposition happened, and that ends up leading to the formation of two camps, if you will, uh, there were those who were beginning to see that Jesus actually is the Christ. He's, Christ means the Messiah, the promised one. And then there's those who do not. In chapter 13, Jesus teaches that uh, a division or a split happens when the kingdom of heaven comes. Not everybody enters the kingdom of heaven. And so the split is, is acted out in the remaining chapters there, all the way to chapter 16. And this section is helpful for really reorienting us, uh, 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 reorienting us outward for evangelism. We are to be witnesses of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of a world that's going to oppose Christ. Chapter 16 through 18 is all about uh, the teaching about discipleship. Jesus is preparing these disciples to go out into the world, to preach the gospel to every 
creature. In chapter 16, many people say that the hinge of, of Matthew's gospel is Peter's confession. Peter confessed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He is God. And then Jesus teaches about discipleship. He corrects a few misunderstandings there as well. And then he shows his disciples how to live together. <laughs> they were having issues with that. Just like you and I have issues of living with one another. There's always going to be conflict between people. And Jesus is helpful in the, that regard. And then the parables in chapter 18, they're doing this by teaching about the church. Specifically, uh, you know, Matthew 18 gets into church discipline. Uh, typically, we often think of church discipline as only the last stage, the excommunication stage. But if you will, church discipline should be happening every week in every healthy church around the world where we are exhorting one another to love and good works, which is why Hebrews 10 says we're to meet together. Even throughout the week, we're to do that, to help each other. And chapters 19 through 25 is a focus on judgment for those who rejected Jesus. So my friend, if you reject Jesus, judgment is coming your way. And so this section's a reminder from Jesus that God intends to bring the whole world into judgment. No one's going to be left out of this. And it's helpful for encouraging us even when we see no ground for hope. There is hope. There's always hope with Jesus. And then the last chapters, 26 to 28, of course, talk about Jesus suffering his death and his resurrection, and then it ends with that great commission that all believers are to go into the world and preach the gospel. You are to go and, and make disciples of Jesus Christ. And you do that by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. That is the church's commission. Everyone in the church is to be fulfilling that commission of Jesus Christ. Well, I have another question for you. Remember, the religious leaders kind of thought Jesus was this, this new guy on the block, so to speak, and that, boy, this kind of radical stuff coming from him. But was Jesus more new or was he more Jew? Yeah, those words kind of rhyme, I know. It's purposely done that way. Was Jesus more new or more Jew? You remember, Jew is a religion, by the way. Jew is not a specifically a people group or, or an ethnic group, but... It, well, let's just think about this for a moment. If you step back and you look at the whole book of Matthew, you're actually going to find the story of a teacher and a preacher. You're going to find someone who's a rabbi. That's what the Jewish teacher was, a rabbi. You find someone who was a faithful Jew. Jesus went to synagogue. Here's somebody who knew the Old Testament. Jesus was certain that the Old Testament would be fulfilled in him. In fact, he said that. And so as he taught and he performed miracles, his mission caught the imagination of the Hebrew people around him. But Jesus was not so much the founder of a new religion. Please don't think that. No, it wasn't a new religion. He was just the inheritor of the old religion, if you will. The, the interpreter of God's special revelation. By the way, not that there was nothing new about Jesus in his ministry. Certainly there is a, a lot of newness that you see in the book of Matthew. The biggest change that Jesus taught about was the destruction of the temple. Wow, that's pretty radical. The temple. Now that's not significant to you, but remember, to a Jew, the temple, everything revolved around the temple. Why is the, the city of Jerusalem so special to the Jews? Because that's where the temple was. Why was that special? Because that represented God's special presence with His people there in the midst of them. And Jesus had the audacity to say that the temple would be destroyed. And so this destruction would have, of course, huge implications. Just think about this for a moment. For just one implication, alright? Animal sacrifices would end. Now, you don't do animal sacrifices, so this may not be significant to you, but they'd been doing them for thousands and thousands of years. A whole lifestyle changes. 
And of course, that's why Jesus mentions the, the destruction of the temple. I mean, this is why Jesus is describing his own body as the temple. And he said that he would die for our sins. In fact, the Bible describes Jesus as the veil. And of course, his body was broken for us. And when he died, the veil in the temple ripped in two, signifying the end of that old sacrificial system. And so the vision Jesus presented here in the book of Matthew was one of considerable change. Yet, having said all this, okay, we notice from the very first sentence in the book of of Matthew just how Jewish Jesus was. Okay? So there's some new things, but there's a lot of things that, that are very old. All right? Look at the very first sentence in your Bible, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the book, that's referring to Matthew, the book of Matthew of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is a record. That's what a genealogy is. It's a record. It's, it's the family tree, if you will. Okay? This is Jesus' family tree, in a way. By the way, it's interesting when you compare Matthew to other Gospels, say like the Gospel according to Mark, the second book in your New Testament. Mark doesn't begin with a sentence like that. And uh, neither does Luke or John. They're very different, okay? Some people think they're, yes, there is some overlap, okay? And you should be comparing them amongst themselves, but... But Matthew's very unique in this regard. Matthew's the most Jewish of the Gospels. The most Jewish of the Gospels. In fact, this Gospel is full of references to the Old Testament. Out of all the Gospels, Matthew quotes the Old Testament the most. And so what is he trying to do? He's showing that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. In Christ, promises were kept in Christ. He's the fulfillment. I'll just give you a couple examples quickly. For example, if you look in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, you see the virgin birth mentioned. Uh, that was, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, you, you, I hope you know this, was actually prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7. All right? Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7. And then if you look at chapter 2, verse 15, uh, the flight um, uh, to Egypt, that was also prophesied in the Old Testament. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 17, the slaughter of the innocents was prophesied in the Old Testament. Chapter 2, verse 23, the, the fact that Jesus was from Nazareth was also prophesied in your Old Testament. And that's just the first two chapters, okay? I'm not going to bore you with every single chapter in Matthew. But do you get the point, though? All throughout the book of Matthew, Matthew's pointing to Christ as the fulfillment of those prophecies hundreds and some thousands of years before Christ was ever born. So in Matthew, Jesus presents himself as the key to understanding the Old Testament Scriptures. And so if you were... Uh, don't, don't do this, okay? Please don't do this. But... If you were to take your Bible and and go to that 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 lone little page that all it says is the New Testament, and you were to take your Bible and rip it in half right there, and then throw the part of it away, the New Testament part of away. And then you were basically to read it, and and Jesus would say to you something like this, you're not going to understand the book without me. Your Old Testament's not going to make sense without Christ. Because the Old Testament's pointing to Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus says so in Luke chapter 24. If you don't believe me, read Jesus' words in Luke 24. He's the interpreter of Israel's religious writings and traditions. Now, sometimes people see Jesus' conflict with the, the, the Jewish leaders, and they say, well, wow, he, he went in there and he just smashed up Judaism. 
did he? Not really. <laughs> Not really. The problem was the religious leaders had diverted from Judaism. They had diverted from, from scriptures. And so Jesus was actually restoring Judaism to its full glory. He displayed why the law, the prophets, the temple, all of its customs, why were those things there? Why? They're pointing to Christ. And of course, they, the, the Jewish religious leaders of that day missed that for the most part. Ultimately, it all points to Christ. He is the one who is the holy God, the perfect man, and the merciful sacrifice, all wrapped up in one. Well, to finally settle this question, in case you don't know the answer yet, is Jesus more new or more Jew? <laughs> He's both, actually. Jesus is more new, is it, or is he more Jew? Well, to really answer that question, we need to go to the book of Matthew here and ask the question, well, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And to answer the question of, well, who is Jesus, we need to look at some of these people that are mentioned here, some of these facts that are mentioned here in the book of Matthew. All right. First of all, we'll look at Jesus and some Old Testament figures that are mentioned here. And the first one that we read about in Matthew 1 verse, sorry, the second one we read about, is Abraham. You see that in verse 1? It says that Jesus Christ is not only the son of David, but he's the son of Abraham. So you need to understand something about Jesus. Jesus' whole ministry is deeply rooted in the history and the life of the nation of Israel. Israel is God's special chosen people. He, he purposely picked out this guy who originally named Abram, an insignificant idolater, uh, just a nomad, nothing special about him at all. God picks a nobody and makes something of him, the father of Israel. And so in Jesus, we see the fruition of the lives of these men of the Old Testament. And in this case, Abraham is mentioned here in verse 1. He shows up here in, in, uh, in, in the very first verse. And so he's treated as the, the originator of the faith in chapters 3 and 8. In chapter 22, here's what Jesus says of Abraham. Listen closely. He says, here's what Jesus says, I am the God of Abraham. You get that? Jesus says, I am the God of Abraham. You say, well, what? What's the point? Why did Jesus say that? Well, that, that meant everything to a Jew. The faith that began with God's call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 is brought to a climax in Jesus Christ. Remember the Abrahamic covenant that began there in Genesis 12? Those first three verses, some of the most significant verses in your Bible. But of, of those promises mentioned to Abraham, God said, that through your seed, your descendants, that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Well, Abraham's not the only one mentioned in the book of Matthew. Moses is also mentioned. Moses is also mentioned. The figure of Moses really looms across uh, Matthew. Let me give you an example. Moses, you remember in Matthew chapter 17 when we when I preached on that? I hope you remember that. What happens in Matthew 17? It's, it's the, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is up there. His veil of glory is removed for a few moments, however long that was. Who's standing next to Jesus? Elijah and Moses. You have a prophet. Two of the, Israel's greatest prophets. So, Jesus stood uh, there with, with, with Moses at transfiguration. What does that signify? It's signifying the law's testimony to Jesus. God was using that to point to Jesus. And of course, typical Peter. Peter sticks his foot in his mouth again. <laughs> he misses the whole point. He's wanting to make these, these, these tabernacles. No, it's not about Elijah and Moses, it was about Jesus. And so Moses' teaching was Christ's reference point for discussing everything. 
uh, even up to things like divorce and resurrection. Jesus even begins his teaching ministry on a mountain, which, by the way, was a subtle reminder of Mount Sinai, where the original law was given. So Matthew, of all of the gospel accounts, remember, he's the most Jewish. He's, He's reminding us of the Old Testament, quoting the Old Testament. So Matthew tends to present Jesus as the new Moses, the greater Moses, if you will. And Jesus understood himself, by the way, to be that, that new lawgiver for Israel. Well, there's another reference in the book of Matthew that's significant. Turn to chapter 12 for this one. Chapter 12. Remember, for a Jew, the temple was incredibly significant. It meant everything to a Jew. And I want you to see what the Bible says here in Matthew chapter 12. Just read along in your Bible as I read verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Let's just stop there for a moment. Uh, Sorry, I want to read verse 6. Look what Jesus says in verse 6. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Whoa. Some considered that to be blasphemy. That's how significant that was. That was worthy of death for some people to make such a claim. Something greater than the temple was here? What could that possibly be? Of course, it's Jesus. Jesus is greater than the temple. And of course, that comparison would have gotten the attention of Jesus' Jewish audience. Now, here's a first century Jew, and what is he doing? He's actually referring to himself as greater than the temple. Oh, he's not done yet, by the way. (laughs) He is not done yet. Look at another example. Look at verse 38. Look at verse 38. Because here Jesus compares himself to the prophet Jonah. Verse 38, Jesus, here's what the Bible says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, notice these words, again, verse 41, something greater than Jonah is here. So here again, Jesus is using this, this, this lesser to greater comparison. He's just talked about the temple. He's saying that he is the God of Abraham, the God of Moses, the God of David. Now he is greater than the prophet Jonah. And it doesn't end there, by the way. Look at verse 42. We got another contrast or comparison in verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Whoa. So, do you get the point, my friends? All right, there's your list. Five things mentioned there. Jesus is greater than Abraham, Moses, the temple, the prophet Jonah, and King Solomon. 
He's greater than all those things because He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the great prophet, the great priest, and the great king. Jesus is the priest to end all priests. He is the prophet to end all prophets. He is the, the great king who one, one day will end all kingdoms. And there will only be one kingdom, and Jesus will be the king of that kingdom. And so these other figures, what are they, what are they doing? They're just mere foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus is referred to in chapter 1, verse 1, as the son of David. Now, I purposely skipped over that one, so that, in case you noticed that. Jesus is, the, is described as the son of David. And so, there in verse 1, it describes him as that. And then, if you were to look at chapter 1, verse 20, chapter 1, verse 20, the angel addresses Jesus' earthly father, not his real father, just his earthly stepfather, if you will, Describes him as Joseph, the son of David. Why do you do that? Because the Messiah was supposed to be of the line of David. If you go back to the book of Samuel and read about the Davidic covenant, it said there would be someone from the line of David who would rule on the throne of Jerusalem. That was referring to Jesus. And so it's interesting to notice who recognized Jesus as the son of David. And, and, and throughout the book of Matthew, by the way, there's several different people who call Jesus the son of David. Of all the things they could have said about him, it's interesting they chose that title, son of David. Uh, let me just quickly throw a few out to you, okay? And we'll think about this for a moment. In chapter 9, there's two blind men. And they actually shouted out, here's what they said, I quote the Bible, have mercy on us, son of David. And so when Jesus healed a blind man, and then in chapter 12, he heals this blind man, and the people, they're, they're astonished, and they ask each other, could this be the son of David? And then in chapter 15, there's a Canaanite woman who's demon-possessed, or I should say, she's not demon-possessed, but she had a, she had a demon-possessed daughter, and they cried out, Son of David, again. And then in chapter 20, a fourth time, there's two blind men. They call out to Jesus, again say, Son of David. Often it's the physically blind in the book of Matthew who are the ones who are able to see the best. Have you noticed that? The physically blind are the ones who are able to see spiritually the best. They're the ones who actually saw Jesus as the son of David, the prophesied one, who fulfilled all the covenants of the Old Testament. Well, he's not just the son of David. We also see that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. Matthew makes it clear that Jesus is the Christ. He is Jesus Christ. The Greek word uh, Christ there is it means Messiah. Greek for Messiah. Four times in, in the very first chapter alone, Matthew chapter 1, he uses that title for Jesus. He calls him the Messiah, the Christ. What is he trying to do? From the very beginning, Matthew's trying to show that Jesus is the, the anointed one, the king of kings. He's the one who the, the people of Israel have been waiting for. All right, look at, look at chapter 1, verse 1. It says that he, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. All right, look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. The Messiah. That's what it means, the Messiah. And then the rest of the gospel just continues that theme. And if you, again, if you look at verse 17, you'll see it again. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ. And then again in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Matthew's purposely picking that word. 
That word means Messiah. He's the one the Old Testament was pointing to and talking about. And throughout the book, Matthew continually points to Jesus as Christ, the Messiah. It's interesting. You remember the Magi? Those wise men, supposedly wise men who came. They were looking for Jesus, Christ, because he was the king of the Jews. Read chapter 2. You find them doing this. Herod knew they were looking. When King Herod found out, he's concerned. And, and the Magi, what did they call him? These, these are Gentiles from the East, and they're saying that he is the Christ, the Messiah. Well, Herod was concerned, and so he's, then he proceeds to go out and kill babies, trying to deal with this Christ. Well, I want you to look at chapter 16, because this clearly shows Jesus as Messiah. Look at chapter 16. We don't have time to look at all the examples, but this is certainly a clear example showing that at least some of the disciples at this point believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. Now look at uh, Matthew 16, verse 13. Verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Son of Man's Jesus. Another title for Jesus. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. Remember, that means Messiah. Greek word for Messiah. You are the Christ, Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for, bless, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We'll jump down to verse 20. Verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Messiah, the Christ. Now, your Bible probably says the Christ, but I'm just emphasizing Matthew's purposely pointing out that Jesus is the Messiah. So, Jesus accepted Peter's statement here, didn't he? Jesus didn't argue with Peter. He said, no, no, Peter, you got it wrong again. Take your foot out of your mouth. No, he didn't do that this time, did he? He said, no, he's agreeing with Peter. He got it right that he was the Messiah. Peter understood that Jesus was more than just David's son. He's more than just uh, uh, the son of Abraham. He is the son of the living God. Well, did Jesus call himself the Messiah? Did he call himself the Messiah? By the way, he did. Jesus called himself the Messiah. And by the way, there's only three responses you can have to Jesus. This isn't original with me. Remember, C.S. Lewis did this a long time ago. Either Jesus is who he said he was, he is either Lord, he's a lunatic, or he's a liar. The only three options available to us. He is either the Lord, a lunatic, or a liar. And he said he was he was the Messiah. In chapter 16, he basically admitted here to his disciples that he was the Messiah after Peter's confession. In chapter 24, here's what Jesus says. Listen closely. For many will come in my name claiming, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And finally, look what Jesus said when the high priest directly asked him a question. Here in Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, he says, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus answered clearly and unambiguously, yes, it is as you say. So is Jesus Lord, lunatic, or liar? He can't be a good man and a good teacher 
and not be who he claims to be. Do you understand that? There's plenty of people out there who think of Jesus as some good person and good teacher, and they they like a lot of his teachings, but remember, you cannot separate the teachings from the person. You can't. He can't be a good person and not be Lord. He cannot be Messiah and, and, and then you just, you know, don't agree with that part and then agree with, with other parts. Well, how do people respond to Jesus throughout the book of Matthew? Well, often the disciples themselves, they didn't understand Jesus. In fact, Jesus rebukes them several times for their lack of understanding. Uh, Jesus said that they were slow to believe. Well, who did understand Jesus? Well, it's interesting. Throughout the book, a lot of times it's it's the, the outcasts, it's the Gentiles who are actually believing more and have greater faith than the disciples. Very strange mixture of people. I want you to see what Jesus actually prays here in chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. Is that on the screen? Yeah, there it is. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Just look at those words for a moment. There were only two people in Matthew's gospel whose faith caused a positive reaction. In fact, Jesus is, the Bible uses the idea that Jesus is actually astonished by the response of these people. Only two people. First one was a Roman centurion. A Roman centurion. Do you understand who that is? This is a guy who is in the Roman army of the Roman Empire. He serves Caesar. And he has faith that astonishes Jesus. There's, and then there's a Canaanite woman. Again, a Gentile. I want you to see what the centurion says to Jesus in chapter 8. Look at chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 8. Chapter 8, verse 8. This is what the centurion says to Jesus. Put your eyeballs in Scripture here. This this is so cool. Chapter 8, verse 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus was astonished here. We've looked at this before. You can see his astonishment. He's astonished at this Roman soldier's understanding of who Jesus is, and and how much authority He has. And then, in chapter 15, Jesus praises the Canaanite woman. Look at chapter 15. And He praises the Canaanite woman because she has great faith. Jesus first repels her, but, but she's persistent. Look at chapter 15, verse 27. Chapter 15, verse 27. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So both of these Gentiles, these these non-Jews, Respond to Jesus. Have great faith. They accepted without question Jesus' authority and His mission as He defined it. Well, rightly then, we find people, what are they doing here in the book of Matthew? They're, they're actually worshiping Jesus Christ. Because they believe that He was the Messiah. He was the Christ. For example, if you don't believe me, let's, let's just think about some examples here in Matthew. What did the Magi do? What did these wise men do in Matthew chapter 2 when they came to Jesus? Even though he's just physically speaking, he's only a baby. 
He's in a humble place, surrounded by animals. He's in their feeding trough of the animals. And these very proud, probably very rich, in their country, important people, coming all this way to see a child. (laughs) Sorry, he wasn't in the manger at that point, but I don't believe he was. But anyway, they're coming... The Bible says they come to the house where Jesus was. The Magi, what did they do? They worshipped, the Bible says. Then Jesus told Satan in chapter 4 that God alone is to be worshipped. And then the Bible says that Jesus actually accepts worship three times. For example, chapter 14. In chapter 14, uh, Jesus receives worship from the disciples... They're in the boat. They've seen him walking on the water. And Jesus receives worship from them. And then he received worship in chapter 28 from the woman when he was there at the tomb. After Jesus arose from the grave, the woman worships Jesus. Jesus doesn't stop her. Again, in chapter 28, Jesus received worship from the disciples who saw Jesus again after his resurrection. So, you can see Jesus accepted worship because he's worthy of worship. So the the message of Matthew is that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, and he's also this long-awaited Messiah. So I ask you this question, my friends. Why did Christ come? As we think about that during the month of December, remember, what's the whole reason for the season of Christmas? Why did Jesus come? Is it all about receiving gifts and having parties and even eating lots of fatty food and lots of sugary food and New Year's resolutions and so forth? No, it's not about that, is it? In fact, look what the Bible itself says in the book of Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 here. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He came to serve. He came to die. He was born to die a Calvary so the people's sins would be dealt with. The greatest problem you and I have is our sin. There's no greater problem that you have than your sin. You might be thinking of some other things. (laughs) But I can assure you, Scripture says your greatest problem is your sin. The wages of sin is death. And so Jesus came to deal with your sin. He died in your place. He was your substitutionary atonement. So that you don't have to pay for your sin for all of eternity in the lake of fire. So Matthew teaches that you and I have sinned. And because of that, we've separated ourselves from God. Our sin separates us from this holy God. That creates a huge problem for you and for me. And so now, as a result of our sin, we are now under God's wrath. We're under the judgment of a just judge. A judge has to deal with criminals. When a criminal does wrong... Every just judge gives that criminal justice, right? All right. In case you don't believe that, let me just use an earthly illustration. For example, heaven forbid that this should ever happen, but let's say, let's say, for example, some nasty man killed your mother. Some nasty man comes and murders your mother. The police catch the man. He comes up before the judge. Would you consider that judge to be righteous and just if he slaps that man on the wrist and he says, you naughty boy, don't ever do that again. And then he lets him go free? What would you say about that judge? That God just killed your mother. What what would you say to the judge who does something like that? We would all be up in arms, wouldn't we? We would be angry. We'd say that judge has some serious problems. He shouldn't be a judge. That's not justice. That's not being just and righteous. 
we, we think that about earthly judges, but what about the great judge? The judge of the universe will judge righteously, the Bible says. He will do what is just. He knows everything. We've sinned. We deserve to spend eternity in the lake of fire. We deserve to go to hell as a result of our sin. Is he going to be any different? He's not going to just slap us on the wrist and say, Oh, you naughty girl, don't do that again. I'll let you into my heaven, but just don't sin again. He's not going to do that. Sin has to be dealt with. But how did love and mercy meet? The Bible says that love and mercy met in Jesus Christ. Christ had to come to this earth. But before 2,000 years ago, he was a spirit. So how could he come to this earth and die? Spirits don't die, do they? Something had to happen, right? The Bible says that Jesus took on the form of a human being. He became a human being so he, so at least his human nature could die. Jesus has two natures. And in the process, he took the punishment for our sin on himself, and he didn't stay dead, did he? He arose from the grave. He conquered death. And then he has... He comes to us, the Bible says. He calls us to repent, the Bible says. We, repentance is this idea. It's your changing of mind in regards to your sin. Repentance is a, is a 180. You've, you've, you've been thinking this way about your sin, and now it's a total 180 different way of thinking about your sin. The Bible calls us to believe, to trust in Jesus Christ alone, to turn from our sins and to have a new life in Jesus Christ. My friend, that is possible. And it's possible for you and I to know that. It's not arrogance. It's not pride. In fact, if you read the book of John, John says that that these things were written. You, You might know that you have eternal life. The Bible describes God as eternal life. He literally is eternal life. If you have Him, if you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, then you have death. (laughs) So my friend, I ask you, do you have the Son? Does the Son have you? I don't mean that that big round object out there in the sky that, that gives us light and heat. I don't mean that. I mean that Jesus Christ. Do you have Jesus Christ? Does Jesus Christ know you? If, if you do know him, are you growing in the knowledge and the grace of Jesus Christ? Are you living in his grace every moment of your life? Are you striving to know him better? He's revealed himself here. You, you, you haven't seen him personally, but he's given us four books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you might know him, his person, and his work. So my friend, make a commitment that you would know him. You would continue to grow and be more conformed to his image. 